Any views and opinions expressed are those of the authors and or participants and do not necessarily reflect the views, policy, or position of the Gastroenterology Learning Network or HMP Global, its employees, and affiliates. Welcome to this podcast from the Gastroenterology Learning Network. I'm your host, Priyam Vora, and today we are talking with Dr. Alexander Ford. Dr. Ford is a professor of gastroenterology at the University of Leeds and an honorary consultant gastroenterologist at Leeds Teaching Hospitals, NHS Trust in Leeds, UK. Today, we are going to discuss his research into the use and effectiveness of amitriptyline as a second-line treatment, better known as the Atlantis trial, for irritable bowel syndrome. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Ford. Thank you for asking me to talk to you about the Atlantis trial, Priyam. First question, what prompted your research into studying the effectiveness of low-dose antidepressants in the management of IBS? So I've been interested in the management of IBS for probably 15 years or so. And my background is in health services research and meta-analysis. And in 2008, we were one of the first groups to do a meta-analysis of tricyclic antidepressants, of which amitriptyline is one, for the treatment of irritable bowel syndrome. And that showed that as a group of drugs, tricyclic antidepressants were probably effective for managing IBS. But most of the trials in the meta-analysis were small, and they used historical definitions of irritable bowel syndrome and they weren't powered to detect a significant difference. So although the meta-analysis showed a benefit, the individual trials didn't. And so that has never really translated into clinical practice, certainly in primary care in the UK, because the other issue is most of the trials were conducted in specialist centres, so in secondary or tertiary care populations, and those patients may have more refractory symptoms. So general practitioners and primary care physicians in the UK don't use amitriptyline often to treat irritable bowel syndrome. And we know that because we've surveyed them and asked them about this very question. In the UK, the management of conditions in primary care is often based on National Institute for Health and Care Excellence or NICE guidelines. And the NICE guidelines for IBS make an equivocal statement about whether or not GPs should consider using drugs like amitriptyline for IBS. They say they could consider using them, but they don't say offer. And that's important because the hierarchy is that offer means that you should do something, whereas consider means you could do something, but the evidence is not there to support it. And in those guidelines from NICE, there was also a research recommendation that said somebody and it turns out that somebody was me, should do a trial of a low dose, so between sort of 10 and 30 milligrams of a tricyclic antidepressant like amitriptyline for the management of irritable bowel syndrome in primary care. And so we used all of that information to apply to the National Institute of Health Research in the UK to do a trial of amitriptyline. And we decided to do it as a second line treatment for people with IBS in primary care. So after they'd failed first line treatments that most GPs would use. That's really interesting. Okay, so would you describe your study? So, yes, thank you. Atlantis was a phase three study and it was an effectiveness study. So it was a pragmatic study, although it was placebo controlled. And it was conducted in England in three geographical regions of England. 
in West Yorkshire, which is in the north of England, in the west of England, around a city called Bristol, and in Wessex, which is in the south of England, around a city called Southampton. And we recruited 55 general practices and we asked them to recruit patients with irritable bowel syndrome for us. And we recruited patients with IBS of any subtype. So we, they could have constipation or diarrhea or mixed bowel habits or unclassified IBS. So these 55 practices in these three geographical regions recruited 463 patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And they were randomised one-to-one to receive amitriptyline or placebo. And that was for six months. So it was six months of blinded treatment. And everyone commenced the drug at a dose of 10 milligrams once daily. And they were advised to take it at night because it can cause drowsiness. And then they could self-titrate the dose of the drug during the trial. And that was done by giving them a standardised information leaflet that suggested how they might do that over the first three weeks of the trial. So we expected that many people would get to the dose that they were comfortable with within the first three weeks of the trial. And the maximum dose they were allowed to go up to was 30 milligrams at night. But they could tinker with the dose, in other words, adjust the dose as they saw fit for the rest of the trial, as long as they didn't go beyond 30 milligrams a day. They could even drop it down to 10 milligrams alternate days if they thought that that was beneficial for them although few people did that. Most people were taking either 10 or 20 milligrams in the trial. And what did you find? So we found that at six months in our primary endpoint, uh, which was measuring the effect of amitriptyline versus placebo on something called the Irritable Bowel Syndrome Severity Scoring System, which is a scoring system from zero to 500 points. So everyone had to have active symptoms at the time they were randomised, and that's defined by a score of 75 or more. So we found that the mean scores were significantly lower in the amitriptyline arm at six months than they were with placebo. So there was around about a 100-point drop in the score in the amitriptyline arm at six months compared to a drop of around 70 in the placebo arm. So the, the difference between the two arms was, was, was sort of 28, 29 points in total, which is a modest difference, but the result was highly statistically significant because it was a big trial and it was adequately powered. We also looked at something called subjective global assessment of relief, uh, which is a, an, an outcome measure that's used in pragmatic irritable bowel syndrome trials, and that was our key secondary endpoint. And we found that the odds of having subjective global assessment of relief with amitriptyline was about 1.8 times higher than with the placebo. We also measured mood because obviously you could view amitriptyline as being an antidepressant type of medication, although the rationale for using it in IBS is not because we're using it as an antidepressant, because we're using a much lower dose than would be used for depression. We think that at the lower dose, it has a beneficial effect on pain signaling and on bowel motility. And that's why it may be beneficial in irritable bowel syndrome. So when we measured their mood scores at baseline and at six months using something called the hospital anxiety and depression scale, we found that there was no difference in mood scores between the two treatment arms. So amitriptyline was not having central effects on the brain in terms of improving mood, depression or anxiety. So it was having its effects on the bowel symptoms independent of any effect on mood, which I think is important and useful for patients to be able to 
couch it in those terms to them so that they realize that we're not giving them a drug because we think that there's something that's all in their mind or that they're depressed or anxious or any of those things so um okay so what do the results imply like at what stage should doctors turn to amitriptyline as a medication so in primary care now i think it's clear that if patients have failed first line treatments and by that we would mean dietary changes so standard dietary advice from a dietitian or even perhaps a low fodmap diet or drugs such as antispasmodic drugs or peppermint oil or antidiarrheals or laxatives if they failed those treatments or you know sorry failed is perhaps a, a, not the right term to use if they have had no impact on the patient's symptoms then amitriptyline should be considered as a second line treatment in those patients provided there are no contraindications to using the drug of course okay so what about the duration of the first line therapy like how long do we have to wait before we initiate this line of treatment is there a time gap between the first line treatment and the second line treatment that's a very good question i don't think that there needs to be i think patients whenever certainly in the uk usually when a gp starts a new treatment they will arrange a review with the patient probably within 3 months or so so i think if at that stage the treatment isn't having any benefit or it's had side effects that have made it intolerable then amitriptyline could be considered at that stage if the patient's had a partial response to the treatment then it could be that you wait a bit longer or it could be that you consider adding amitriptyline in on top of the existing treatment provided again there are no contraindications to using the two drugs together and just to go back to your earlier question actually the other point at which amitriptyline could be used is when someone is coming to see me and I'm not a primary care physician but it may be that a patient has already failed first line treatments but hasn't been considered for amitriptyline in primary care so gastroenterologists who are consulting with patients who've already tried first-line treatments and have not had a benefit should be thinking about using amitriptyline if it hasn't been used before. If we were to use amitriptyline, what would we be replacing? What are the other current guideline-suggested second-line options? Would amitriptyline be a replacement or an addition? Amitriptyline is very cheap in the UK. So potentially it could be a replacement for some of the drugs. And actually many of the drugs that we use in IBS as second line treatment are used based on predominant bowel habit. So the drugs that are available as second line treatments are either for people with diarrhea or people with constipation. There are not many treatments that, in fact, there are no treatments that are licensed for the treatment of people with mixed stool pattern IBS. So actually that group of patients miss out in terms of having licensed drugs that are available. In the US, you have several licensed drugs that are available for both IBS with diarrhea and IBS with constipation. But in the UK, we don't have any other than linaclotide. So we only have linaclotide. We don't have alexadiline. So in the UK, it would be a second line treatment for probably patients with IBS with diarrhea or patients with mixed stool, uh, mixed bowel habits. In the US, different, I guess, and it depends on the um, insurance status of the patients and how much the drugs cost. But again, amitriptyline is relatively cheap in the US as well. It could be used in addition, perhaps, to drugs for constipation that are maybe not having much effect on pain. So you could have a drug that you're using, like a secretagogue, 
for their bowel habit to try and improve the constipation. But if pain is a dominant symptom, you may also wish to use some low dose amitriptyline. In the patient with mixed bowel habits in the US, the situation is the same as the UK. There are no licensed treatments. So from, from the results of the Atlantis trial, you would suggest that amitriptyline could be considered as a second line treating those patients. And similarly, in those with diarrhea, if you've decided you're not going to use alexadiline or it's not worked, or there are contraindications to using it, like the patient's not got a gallbladder, then you could again consider using amitriptyline in those patients. Right. Okay. In the results, were there any stark revelations in the effectiveness of amitriptyline based on gender, race, IBS subtype, smoking, lifestyle habits, you know, those other factors? So very good question. In terms of lifestyle data we didn't collect information about alcohol intake and smoking so we won't have looked at that in our analyses we did collect data obviously on gender sex and ethnicity and the trial is predominantly white 97 percent white caucasian so we wouldn't be able to make any recommendations about whether the drug is more effective in a particular ethnic group the trial was around about two-thirds female, which is actually not too bad for an IBS trial. Many IBS trials are 80 or 90% female, so we had a third of males in the trial. And the drug showed a benefit over placebo for both men and women with IBS. And similarly, we collected subtype data. Now, one of the theories of how amitriptyline works is that it slows down bowel transit. So there is this worry that you might make someone who's got IBS with constipation symptoms worse. But actually, when we looked at efficacy across IBS-C, IBS-D and IBS-M, there was a therapeutic gain over placebo in all three subgroups. That said, 80% of people in the trial had either IBS-D or IBS-M. So only 20% had IBS-C, but the therapeutic gain of the drug over the placebo in the IBS-C group was around about 10%. The therapeutic gain was biggest, and this is what we would expect, in the group who had IBS with diarrhea. And that's intuitive because, as I said, it slows transit, we think. What are your recommendations to general practitioners or gastroenterologists specifically? So we would obviously say that where applicable and where safe to do so, GPs should consider use, or should offer, actually, should offer amitriptyline at a low dose and titrated to patients with IBS who have not had a benefit from first-line treatments for their condition. And in secondary care, as I said earlier, if, you, if you're a gastroenterologist and you see someone who hasn't already tried amitriptyline but has failed a laxative or an anti-diarrheal, again, you should offer them amitriptyline provided there are no contraindications. Obviously, that requires a careful and nuanced discussion with the patient as to why you're using a drug that they may consider to be an antidepressant. But the results of this trial should help frame that discussion. And also the Atlantis trial has its own website where you can actually download a rationale, the, ras the same rationale that we used in the information leaflet of the trial as to why amitriptyline is beneficial in IBS. And you can also download the dose titration document that we used in the trial to help the patient self-direct with support from the physician their dose titration. Um, do you have any plans to expand this to a broader study? So I would love to, but obviously getting investigator-initiated trials in irritable bowel syndrome funded can be challenging. IBS is not viewed particularly as a priority for research funding. 
the pipeline of new drugs in IBS is limited. So pharma companies do, don't invest huge amounts in IBS. And often if a drug does come to market in IBS and it has any side effects, that usually means that the drug sinks uh, or people are unwilling to prescribe it because of the perceived risk in a condition that's viewed as being benign, despite the fact it has huge impact on patients and society. I would like to do a trial of amitriptyline as a first-line treatment of IBS in primary care, obviously. That would be the next logical step. The other option would be that we would now say that it's a standard of care to give amitriptyline as a second-line treatment for IBS in primary care. But can we do a trial that tests multiple other treatments for different subgroups with the standard of care amitriptyline to see if any of those approaches are better than giving patients amitriptyline? So those would be the two things that I would like to do in the future. But these trials take a long time to secure funding for. And, and the trial itself took five years to, to do. So it, these things are tough. Wow. OK, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Dr. Ford. For our listeners, that was Dr. Alexander Ford sharing his research into the Atlantis trial, exploring the effectiveness of amitriptyline as a second line treatment for IBS. Thank you, Dr. Ford. Thank you.